This podcast may include adult content. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories, The Sky Darkens by Len Kruger and Acapulco Blue by Vincent Lewis Corella. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts. The Sky Darkens, written by Len Kruger, read by Dave Robinson. Listening time, 13 minutes, 26 seconds. The Sky Darkens, by Len Kruger. One, a walk in the park. The mad scientist sighs and walks and ponders, thinking of bombs and babies, of physics and romance. A black sedan pulls up. Good afternoon, says the mysterious stranger. Care for a lift? Do I know you? asks the mad scientist. No, says the stranger, but you will. The stranger has a business card, stainless steel engraved with bright orange letters that seem to glow, even in the daylight. The business card says, The Machine. The mad scientist is impressed. 2. Extreme Prejudice The stranger wants the mad scientist to design a new and improved machine. We want you to alter the variables, he says. We want you to alter them with extreme prejudice. Why? I'm not ready to tell you at this time. But it could be dangerous, says the mad scientist, thinking of apocalyptic explosions, of mountains melting and oceans boiling. The mad scientist thinks that this possibility could happen, but probably won't. It would be nice to be sure. Just do it, says the stranger. 3. The Machine The people who work for the machine are called technicians. The customers are called subjects. It's all part of the fantasy, part of the fun. The subjects enter the machine in little rolling cars on a track. The cars twist and turn. They go down whirlpools and up spiraled helixes. They levitate and transubstantiate. It's very complicated. The subjects are bombarded by subatomic particles, which tickle their fancies like carbonated bubbles tickling their noses. High-energy plasmas bathe their bodies like long, luxurious hot showers on a Sunday afternoon. When the subjects emerge from the machine, they have smiles on their faces. Outlooks are sunny for days, weeks, months. Hair grows on bald heads. An athlete's foot fungus is forever eradicated. An added bonus, some suspect, is that special magnetic fields penetrate deep into nasal passages. The mad scientist knows that a scientific connection between magnetic fields and congested nasal passages has never been established. But the stranger forbids any public clarification on this point. The subject should be allowed to believe what they wish. 4. Celebrity Subject the stranger says, At this time, I will tell you why I want you to change the variables with extreme prejudice. The mad scientist waits. We will be hosting a very special celebrity subject to experience a new and improved machine, an unprecedented machine, a revolutionary machine whose thrills and chills will be felt by 500 million television viewers around the world. The mad scientist is still waiting. Our celebrity subject will be subjected to physical, chemical, biological, cultural, spiritual, surgical, and sexual forces never before experienced by any subject. So, who is the celebrity subject? 
the mad scientist's inquiring mind wants to know. I can't tell you at this time, says the stranger. The mad scientist sighs and works and ponders, spending evenings, nights, weekends, poring over the calculations, trying to imagine the identity of the celebrity subject. Was it a politician, an entertainer, a convicted murderer, a billionaire, an athlete, all of the above, or some combination thereof? The mad scientist purchases a supermarket tabloid and leafs through pages bristling with celebrities. This one? Maybe. That one? Perhaps. The mad scientist finishes the calculations and rings for the stranger. I have changed the variables. The new and improved machine works on paper and in theory. We must test it. No, says the stranger, no testing. It could be dangerous. Precisely. I am now ready to reveal the identity of our celebrity subject. The mad scientist waits in anticipation. Our celebrity subject is America's sweetheart. Ah, says the mad scientist wistfully, of course. Five, America's Sweetheart. America's Sweetheart is an international superstar of modest talent and unexceptional muscle tone. But talent and looks are not the reason why 500 million people around the world know the name of America's Sweetheart. America's Sweetheart has no penis. It was lopped off long ago and no one knows how or why. Was it a domestic dispute? An industrial accident? Cooking? Cleaning? Or maybe, some suspect shuddering at the thought, self-mutilation in the service of his career. Nobody knows for sure, a mystery that makes him all the more intriguing. What we do know, intone the commentators and pundits, is that America's sweetheart's testicles remain, thereby retaining the robust and good-humored manliness that America has fallen in love with. His trademark costume is a silver bodysuit with a big blue question mark sewn onto the crotch area. He appears on television talk shows. He looks coyly into the camera and makes cryptic, intriguing, and perhaps maybe even clue-laden jokes like return to sender and missing in action. The television talk show host laughs. The studio audience laughs. 500 million viewers laugh. America's sweetheart turns a negative into a positive. The mad scientist harbors a guilty crush on America's sweetheart. Often the mad scientist watches America's sweetheart on television and senses something behind the joking. It is something vulnerable and sad and poignant. The mad scientist feels a connection, as if America's sweetheart is reaching out to the mad scientist and the mad scientist alone. The mad scientist imagines a conversation with America's sweetheart. I understand, the mad scientist might say. You have to do what you have to do. What choice do we have? America's sweetheart might respond. 6. The Connection the new and improved machine is built. Everything is ready. A rumor spreads, a tantalizing speculation. If the old machine can cure sinus problems, would it not be logical to conclude that the new and improved machine might make America's sweetheart's penis grow back? Why not? Stranger things have happened. 500 million remote subjects tune in. A digital counter on the screen displays the minutes and seconds until it's time. 25 minutes to go. In the green room, the stranger introduces America's sweetheart to the mad scientist. The meeting is televised. The stranger provides introductory remarks. Today, the world witnesses a fusion of science and art, a holy marriage of entertainment and technology, a divine consummation of beauty and the beast. Pleased to meet you, says the mad scientist, arm extended. America's sweetheart is shocked and amazed. Oh my God, he cries, you're a girl.
the mad scientist is a brilliant physicist who happens to be a woman. 7. Questions and Answers America's sweetheart winks at the cameras. He straightens the big blue question mark sewn onto his crotch area. He turns to the mad scientist. You sure you know what you're doing, honey? Yes, says the mad scientist through clenched teeth. Do you? I'm depending on you. Got it? He grabs his crotch, thrusting a fistful of fabric toward the cameras. Now listen, the mad scientist says, but the live camera shut off. Perfect, says the stranger. Now, says America's sweetheart, I would like to have a word with this lovely lady. In private, if you know what I mean. He winks. The stranger nods. America's sweetheart and the mad scientist have five minutes together alone. The mad scientist looks at America's sweetheart, and now it is her turn to be shocked and amazed. Gone is the impish grin, the swagger, the arrogance. There is fear in his eyes. I sincerely apologize for my behavior, he says, shaking her hand. It's just business. You know how it is. Oh, says the mad scientist, of course. I wanted to ask you a few questions in private. Is that okay? Sure. America's sweetheart extracts a piece of folded notebook paper tucked into his costume. He unfolds the paper, his hands shaking. Truth is, he says, I'm very frightened. The mad scientist is also very frightened. There's not too much to be very frightened about, she says, sniffling with sinus congestion. With respect, I must ask, on what do you base that statement? All of my calculations. Physics doesn't lie, she lies. Question number one. Am I going to be killed? Doubtful. Number two, is my penis going to grow back? Possible. Will it hurt? Probable. Will this help my career? I don't know. Will I ever be happy? I'm very sorry, that's not my field. America's sweetheart nods, folds up the piece of paper. I have one more question, he says, smiling at her. When this is over, will I see you again? She looks at the big blue question mark sewn onto his crotch then quickly looks away. I understand, he says. Thank you. He takes her hand, pulling her close to him. He slides out the pins in her hair. Soft brown curls cascade down and around her shoulders. He kisses her tenderly. The mad scientist feels her sinuses clearing. A hidden camera records everything. 8. Ground Zero The mad scientist sits in a glass control booth with her crew of technicians. They overlook the machine from 1,200 yards, 270 meters, four football fields. The booth is soundproof to prevent explosions from rupturing their eardrums. The glass is tinted to prevent flashes from singeing their retinas. The assistant chief technician flicks a switch. The duty assistant chief technician pushes a button. America's sweetheart mugs to the camera and points to his crotch in an exaggerated motion of low comedy. The little car rolls into the machine. 500 million remote subjects are transfixed. Cameras are not permitted inside the machine. Proprietary secrets must be protected. However, America's sweetheart is miked. His words are accompanied by an artistic interpretation of the machine experience as it happens. America's sweetheart begins to narrate. Okay, I'm rolling into this goddamn contraption. It's dark. This is accompanied by a picture of America's sweetheart posing in front of the Statue of Liberty. Then, America's sweetheart says, I feel funny. Picture of audience circa 1950s, laughing uproariously, their heads cocked backwards, their teeth exposed. America's sweetheart hums, picture of musical notes descending a scale. America's sweetheart sighs, tree branches bending in wind. America's sweetheart sneezes, water faucet dribbling, drinks and swallows, corporate diet cola logo. Cursing, edited six-second delay. 
two-ton anvil falling on Cartoon head. Screaming, help, help, somebody help me. Man slipping on banana peel. Weeping, split screen. One, raindrops on roses. Two, whiskers on kittens. Screaming, indistinct. Red cubes descending a musical scale. Moaning, more red. More screaming, bright blood red. Wild maniacal laughter, yellow. Silence, blackness. More silence, more blackness. Nothingness, nothingness. Nine, the apocalypse. Something is wrong. Dead air is transmitted around the world. A blank, silent screen, a multimedia apocalypse. The technicians frantically push buttons and read meters. The stranger paces the floor. The mad scientist rechecks her calculations. Doom and despair stalk the hearts of 500 million remote subjects. Suddenly, they see the edge of the little car nudging out from the machine's exit door. America's sweetheart is in the car. He's moving. He's sitting, upright, smiling, laughing. He stands and faces the camera, arms outstretched, thumbs up. The technicians project a beam of ultraviolet light onto his crotch. Glowing brightly, proudly, is a giant purple exclamation point. The technicians cheer. 500 million remote subjects exult. One billion remote sinuses clear like magic. The stranger lights up a cigar and contemplates a newer and even more improved machine. The little car rolls past the glass control booth. The mad scientist's longing gaze meets the eyes of America's sweetheart. He extends his right arm toward her, palm up, fist clenched. He extends his middle finger. A thousand cameras record everything. Doom and despair stalk the heart of the mad scientist. She closes her eyes, listening to the celebration swirling around her. Suddenly, there is a loud crackle, a thundering. The machine erupts, spewing a plume of fire, a pillar of ash. The mad scientist opens her eyes. The ground rumbles. The sky darkens. Len Kruger's fiction has appeared in Zoetrope All Story, The Barcelona Review, Cross Connect, and elsewhere. He lives in Washington, D.C. Acapulco Blue, written and read by Vincent Lewis Carella. Listening time, 14 minutes. My name is Vincent Lewis Carella. This is Acapulco Blue. He sees his hands on the wheel. He sees the road split out beneath the dawn. He sees blue pasture land and wind-blown grasses that turn colors and darken like the back of a neck of a house cat when you stroke it. And he sees those same grasses flash and wave and rise and roll. He tilts the mirror so he can see the debris trail. The car dips when the road dips and bounces as it flattens and then it bobs on the crests so that the rosary jangles and winds itself around the cardboard pine tree like a maypole of onyx and silver and green twine that spins in the rush of the crosswind that bears on it the smell of good earth and bovinity. The car drifts and sways. Every window is wide open and the newspapers blow around the back seat and on the floor and sometimes right out the window along with the junk mail and the whopper boxes and the crushed and empty packets of Kent's. Everything swirls. Scraps of paper and partially crumpled grocery receipts that hover and spin before deciding to leap from the window of the speeding blue Chrysler. He watches them tumble and fall behind him. 
Sometimes they rise when they catch a thermal, shooting up into the sky and diving back to the road before settling into the light seesaw landings of poorly constructed paper planes. He holds the jittery Chrysler with both hands and leans into the wheel and stares out over the vast expanse of the hood, the color of it, a rare shade of blue that seeks to mimic those places he's only read about in books. Acapulco, Fiji, Cancun. Faded now, sun-bleached, all that showroom lacquer washed out by a cold Kentucky moon. The promise of it. The darkness, the legroom, hip-room, headroom, the you-could-fuck-a-donkey-back-there-room, slowly stolen, methodically filled. She kept every little tidbit, all the things she held, anything she couldn't swallow, sell, or redeem, tossed over her shoulder, dropped, laid down gently, tucked and nestled, layers and layers of mama, her hopes and dreams and fears. If he was clever, he'd have gathered it all up and pressed it together to form an effigy he could burn. If he was born, how she used to say, half artistic instead of half autistic, he'd have emptied the car of all her cast-off trash and made a great soup of paper mache and cigarette butts and built up a statue from her refuse and in her likeness that would make for a perfect testament to her being in her life. She used to call it her garbage. The wheels shimmies in the grip of his fingers and the tires hum and the paper objects pop and crackle as they come loose in the crosswinds and peel away, layer after layer, exposed to air and light once more. When they gave him the keys, he held them in his hand like some totem unearthed from a tomb. She kept every key to every trailer she ever lived in and all the diners where she hustled pancakes and eggs and the dollar depots and the Howard Johnsons and P.O. boxes and five zip codes. Her life fanned out before him in a dazzling array of aluminum and brass, cabins and motels, storage lockers and sheds, a key for every secret place she kept, the weight of them, the colors, coppers and silvers and reds, the teeth and their textures, the beaded chain, the St. Christopher medallion, her nail clippers, all that clicking and clacking and drunken fumbling at broken handles and tumblers worn down to buttery nubs, her late-night jinglings, the gouges and scores that marked the slippages where the tips missed their holes and glanced off like skids, each tiny scratch the story of a broken nail, a bruised knuckle, a sleep-shattering jangle of passages and passings, hasty exits, evictions, illusions, escapes. The key ring sparkles and clicks. It hangs from the steering column and sways gently as the Chrysler rocks with the highway, pushing eighty now the roaring road wind at hurricane strength, the heavier relics from the depths of her strata beginning to separate and rise. They said they found her parked on the side of the road with her head slumped over the wheel like a hundred times before. A late-night phone call. A bus ride to the morgue. A fat man chewing a toothpick led him to a cold room and stood before a locker with a heavy steel handle and asked him if he was ready and he thought that he was. The fat man looked him over to see if maybe he saw something of the woman in his face, and maybe there was recognition of a likeness, or maybe it was the rote gesture of one resigned to perform such grim procedures, but he nodded and switched the toothpick over to the other side of his mouth, and he popped the hollow chamber and rolled her out on a drawer. He rolls, he glides, he coasts and drifts, he lets the wind work its magic on the load. The road is empty and the sun is low. 
The car is alone on the road that goes for miles in a straight line so that he can see the entire stretch of it in one long and continuous strip of garden slate blue bisected by a hair's width of pale yellow that sometimes breaks in the passing zones where already the heat shimmers and inverts the image of the long highway and makes him believe he's driving upside down with his feet toward the sky. She was lying on the steel table with her mascara smeared and her lipstick smudged like a ten-dollar whore. She looked sunken and deflated, flat as a map, and sadder than he remembered, and much older than she was, and dead to the world she despised. He signed some papers and paid some money, and there was only her purse and a manila envelope heavy with what felt to him like a sack of old coins, the keys to her car. It is a car that goes. It is a car that moves and sounds and feels like nothing that could ever be made by robots in some small Asian nation. It is a car actually made of steel, made by hands. The steering wheel vibrates and it drives like a boat, but it's solid as a battleship and just as deadly, and he aims it west out of Kentucky and toward one of the blue places he's seen before in the pages of the National Geographic magazines he used to slip under his coat in the offices of balding men with advanced degrees who she'd go to for prescriptions to things that would help her sleep or keep her awake or make the voices stop telling her to never let go of those things that prove she's alive, to prove she's here. And she was here, and she raised him by herself, but she didn't raise him right or he wouldn't have wound up in those places where they put boys who can't control the things they do with their hands, steal cars, huff paint, smash bone. She felt like a rag doll when he held her. She felt like a child. He was already bigger than his daddy by the time he was 16, and he should have known better than to hit a woman. That's what she told him. But even then, she wouldn't give up the keys. It was parked out behind the sheriff's trailer between a chase wrecker and a backhoe, and as soon as he saw it, he knew he had to drive it fast and far. It was gloriously beautiful on the day she won it at the bingo parlor. It was shiny like the sea in some photograph, and it was clean. It sparkled in the sunlight and gleamed under the moon, and for a little while it was dazzling and perfect. But over the years it had become one of those Weird cars you see sometimes in the back of the Walmart or parked at the edges of rest stops in places like Winnemucca or Barstow. Lonely places where strangeness and squalor blend in. You see them on the roadside with fogged up windows and an eerie light glowing from within and there's always some shadow moving about and maybe a radio going on the AM band, but what strikes you is the garbage, all the empty bottles and newspapers and wax paper cups layers and layers of trash, and you wonder how it got to be this way. Why, why don't they just pull up to a dumpster and empty the thing? You wonder why, but you know why. You know it's not about the opportunity or the will. You know it's not laziness. You know it's not about the mere inability to let go. It's about holding on. The paper is flying within the vortex that speed and wind has created inside the cluttered confines of the Acapulco Chrysler. That was his name. He gave it that name when he was a boy. He sat there parked in the driveway, steering, like he's steering now, going someplace, any place. Strips of paper catch on the rearview mirror and flutter there for a moment before zipping out the window like they were sucked from the gaping hole in the roof of a plane. Some blow around the dashboard for a moment. Others get caught in his hair. Grocery lists torn from the rings of small spiral notebooks the pages from those free insurance desk calendars, the cellophane ribbons from cigarette packages, dog hair in tiny clusters, cookie fortunes, 
lottery tickets, the confetti-like sleeves from drinking straws, photographs flashed by and pictures torn from the pages of fashion magazines, coupons, handwritten signs for lost pets she never owned or knew, cardboard tickets for carnival rides, mimeographs, carbon paper, bingo cards, and letters in her sweeping cursive hand, Another's typed out perfect on the old Remington that folded up neatly into a nut-brown case beneath her bed. Letters to lawyers and doctors and governors and movie stars she fancied. And the envelopes they came back in refused. Along with blank job applications and rental agreements and hundreds of canceled checks. Some bad, some good. And all mad to escape the screaming sarcophagus that hurdles past every unnamed pull-out where she rolled to a stop and slipped off into her dreams. The car seems to go faster as its load lightens, and the pieces of his mama slip away one by one. The red needle gently pulses between 90 and 95. He sees things long buried catch the rising sun and throw the light back at him. Chrome shine and translucent buttons, bakelite and stainless steel, windswept designs in molded plastic and space-age foams. As a small boy, he would stare into his distorted funhouse reflection on the shiny doors of Acapulco Blue. He'd watch himself in its quarter panels as he ran back and forth alongside her when she was new. How he'd get taller in some places and midgetized in others. How he could see himself inside the deep, crazy blueness which he imagined was how the sea looked in places where coral reefs and whispering palms and baby powder beaches rimmed the shifting aurora borealis light shows of shallow lagoons. He drives and he drives, and it all comes loose, and the sound of the engine drowns out the rush of the wind, and he hears the valves clacking and eight pistons pounding and air pumping through the carb like an army corps of drums. He sees steam rising from the hood and blowing back over the windshield. He sees paper flying out behind, his vision obscured by a blizzard of papers. He can't see the road ahead. He sees dappled sunlight. He sees gum wrappers and packages of cigarettes that go back four brands, Pall Malls, Chesterfields, and Cools, Crackles, Sparkle, Pop, Whip, 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 all going the way of the wind. There's not much left now. The heavier residue, what won't rise or blow. He hears the bottles roll and clink, rye and brandy and schnapps and cokes. He hears the tinkle of real tin cans, tabs, frescas, the gentle rattle of a thousand pop-tops like shells on the beach, in the ebb of a wave. Miles and miles of road and wind, cloud formations that rise and extend up and over the horizon like signals made with smoke from some distant fire built for him by a giant man he'll never know, who knows him. He drives through the nights with the windows open and doesn't sleep and doesn't eat and speaks only when he's counting light poles, big rigs, roadkill, all the gallons of gasoline the Chrysler consumes on his last journey to the sea. And the number is 126. Dead deer, Peterbilts, possums, coyotes, and cats, Volvos and Freightliners, lost dogs and Macs, roadside crosses and withered wreaths of pink carnations and faded 5 by 10s Names of cities, fuel depots, motels, RV parks, KOAs. The dream of the country. He sees it all in a flash. He wakes to the sound of birds, and he sees them from where he lies, across the barren back seat of the Chrysler, with all its familiar smells. He sees them through the smoke-stained window, shapes in the sky, swooping, wheeling, diving and turning, gulls and pelicans and terns, 
The sky is gray, and the sea is the color of the deep places in the ponds he swung over on braided ropes as a boy. The Pacific, a dull and stagnant green. He hears the roar of the surf, the hiss of it. He hears the birds. The sound of ocean and birds comes in through the windows he's never closed the whole three days of the ride. An echo-like sound. All the earthbound voices. Mama used to sing him songs. In the good times, he was a good boy. In the good times, she was his mom. A soft wind rises. It blows in through the Chrysler. A cool and gentle breeze that brings the salt of creation back home. Vincent Lewis Carella's debut novel, Serpent Box, chronicles the short life of a young boy on a quest for God, meaning, and the secret mysteries of faith. It will be available on February 26, 2008. For more information, visit serpentbox.com. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories. Follow the bookstore link to purchase books written by Boundoff contributors.